that is called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and a curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Let's pray together. Father, we know it is by privilege we are able to gather here this evening. It is with grateful hearts that we come this evening to examine something so weighty as your crucifixion. Lord, we know that the death of our Lord is the pin on which all of history turns. So I pray that we would be able to approach it with that kind of mind now. Help us to realize that the substitutionary saving death of Christ that we see described here in Luke 23 is meant to lead us to worship. I pray that we would do that this evening in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to say before we get further into this that I am really, really thankful for our worship team. I just want to point out this is the first week that they have been planning and that they have been rehearsing and coordinating all together without uh, a staff present in that. And they've had two services to plan this week, so we are extremely grateful to our worship staff. I'm also thankful that you have been able to join us this evening, this evening to read, to sing about, to, to pray about, to hear the proclaimed word concerning the death of Christ. It's my hope and it's my intention as we approach this passage this evening that you would be reminded afresh, that it would be impressed upon all of our souls a reminder of the uh, greatness of our Savior and the cost of our salvation. You know, one of the most interesting things about Scripture, about the Bible, is the way that it's written. Right? So God could have chosen to reveal himself to 
any number of written forms, right? He could have just given us an information guide. You know, he could have just given us uh, somewhat of a textbook, you know, like uh, we use, like uh, pastors use in seminary or, or lay people when they're reading about how our faith is organized. You know, you begin with the doctrine of God and you go to doctrine of salvation, to the doctrine of church. The Lord could have chosen to reveal himself in that kind of way. The Lord could have also chosen to have just a bit of a, a, a letter, you know, like a get-to-know-you kind of thing where he says, you know, uh, here's, if you're going to be worshiping, here's a few things about me, you know, I'm omnipresent, I'm omniscient, um, I'm all kind and generous, I am gracious and merciful. But God does not reveal himself uh, with systematics. God reveals himself through story. When we come to Scripture, we see dramatic tale of humanity that begins at creation uh, that, that has to do with our inability to live up to God's standards, our frequent sin, our falling short of God's commands, our violating His law. And we see time and time again as, as these people of God are formed in Genesis and Exodus and beyond, it's these people of God that they are unable, again, to live up to God's standards and are needing a Messiah, a Savior to come. The prophets predict this, they predict his coming, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it predicts his coming, uh, the, the, what he would bring and what his life and ministry would bring, and then we see him arrive. Scripture comes to its climax with the arrival of Jesus Christ dramatically through virgin conception and birth, and then he lives a full life. He has brilliant and an incredible and unbelievable ministry through, uh, through healings and, and miracles and incredible teaching, opposing religious leaders and all of that comes to its climax in his death by crucifixion. In the book of Luke, Luke describes the life of Jesus powerfully and dramatically. Here in Luke 23, he describes his death powerfully and dramatically. One of the ways that Luke impresses upon us the seriousness of this, it shows us what we're looking at, is actually by showing us a bit of irony. And, of course, that is not ha-ha irony. That's not even like coincident irony. Luke is putting together two ideas that seem as if they should not go together. The idea, on the one hand, of Christ's glory, his magnificence. And on the other hand, the agony of his suffering. Brought near together. We see Christ described here, though through mocking, as a Messiah and a king. We see him lavished with praise only through mocking and scorn. And so we see him uh, as a great king, but one who has come to save his people, not through, uh, not through the sword, not through fighting, not through power, but through suffering. And so we see one who is great, who is magnificent, who is exalted, who has come down to the depths, to the very depths, the worst part of human experience to save his people, to lift his people um, to great heights. He has come and died so that his people might live. We see the glory and the agony of Christ 
together. So to capture this kind of irony, this paradox, I've given you uh, two um, statements. Uh, we see in Christ, though scorned, is supreme. In Christ, though suffering, is sacred. First, in this passage here, in, in Luke 23, 32 through 47, we see that though scorned, Christ is supreme. Christ is mocked by the people who have chosen to put him to death, by these religious leaders, by these Roman soldiers. Christ is mocked and belittled. He is scorned. He is, uh, he is denigrated by these people. Strangely enough, though, they do describe him accurately. The condemnation, the mocking, the laughing, the name-calling they heap upon him ends up being an accurate description of his person. To begin with, the religious leaders mock him and call him a Messiah, sarcastically, of course. Look at verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saves others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And here we see the people, we see a large crowd. They're gathered together to, to witness Christ's death. I mean, remember, Christ had had a large following through his life. He was well known throughout this region. And he was here in, in Jerusalem in a very important week. And so all these people gather together to see his execution. But the religious leaders had the audacity to stand there and mock. They had had the audacity to take this man through an unjust trial, to treat him contemptuously, to trump up false charges when he had done nothing wrong, when he was perfectly innocent. And now they had the audacity to stand as he was crucified and to mock and to belittle him as he suffered. They called him the Christ of God, his chosen one. And you'll probably know that Christ there uh, is, is a reference to, in our English, anointed. He had been specifically, as it says here, chosen by God, that he was uh, selected, he was, he was sent by God specifically to accomplish the purpose of salvation. These religious leaders, they knew that a Messiah was coming, right? They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the teachings that there would be a Messiah to come and to save the people of Israel from their sin. They knew that. But they didn't believe it to be Jesus. They mocked him and they scorned him, basically saying, you can't be a savior. You're dying. Who are you going to save? Who are you going to rescue? You are being put upon a cross to your very death. You can't save even yourself. You could never be Christ's anointed. You could never be uh, the Messiah. They were so wrong. Because as Christ stood there, he was the anointed. He was the chosen one. He was the Messiah who was sent from God. And so Christ stood to take his punishment as Messiah. And he stood to take this mocking and this scorning from the religious leaders. But he was not only mocked and scorned by these religious leaders who, who mocked him and called him Messiah, but these Roman soldiers who were putting to death called him king, again, sarcastically. Look at verse 36, and 
verse 37. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. So these uh, Roman soldiers uh, mocked Christ in, in just the same way as the religious leaders that said, well, if you are, uh, if you are really the big savior from God, then save yourself. In the same way, these Romans said, well, if you're supposed to be this big deliverer, if you're supposed to be the king of these people, well, go ahead, save yourself if you can do it, even as they treated him poorly, as they beat him, and as they crucified him. And so, um, and so the, the, these Roman soldiers probably thought that they were just putting down an, an insurrectionist, that they were putting down some rebel rouser, not knowing that the words they spoke were true, that Christ truly was the king who had been sent by God, that he was Lord, he was creator, that he was God himself, he was the Messiah, and he was the king. So as these people mocked, and as they scorned him, they gave him an accurate description. As our Lord, as our Savior, stood, mocked, and condemned, even then he was receiving the acclamation to his name. And so, uh, we see that Christ was scorned, and through it, we see that he is supreme. We also see, though Christ suffered, he is Savior. I've said this again and again and again, and I'll continue to say it. I'm going to say it right now. When you look to the Gospels, as in the, the written Gospels, we see again and again and again that Jesus flips our expectation of what the world should be like upside down. Shows us that the way we've been seeing things all along has been wrong. And here, even as he dies, he continues to do that very same thing. No doubt the religious leaders, as they crucified him, thought that they were just getting rid of the biggest thorn in their side that had ever walked the streets of Jerusalem. No doubt they thought that they were finally, finally going to uh, hear the end of, of all this talk of Jesus. They probably thought that uh, finally, finally, uh, they would no longer be refuted by, the, by this uneducated uh, carpenter, but they didn't understand that as they crucified him, he was uh, saving humanity. In the same way, the soldiers, as they stood, as they mocked, as they belittled, we see that they probably thought no more of Jesus than, than another insurrectionist, just like this Barabbas that we read earlier, just the guy who was trying to stir up trouble, just putting him down, you know. They had crucified countless people, and they were, frankly, very good at it. And the people that they crucified were as dead as a doornail. They didn't lead revolutions. They were not revolutionaries. But instead, as they thought they were putting to death one who would, uh, would raise an insurrection or revolution, they were actually doing, as we read in Isaiah, the will of the Lord so that people of God might be delivered and saved. So Christ suffers, but brings salvation. We see that in a few ways. First, we know that Christ suffers in dignity. Christ suffers in dignity here. 
from the cross, you can look at verses 32 and 33 and see that pretty clearly. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull where they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So we already know that Christ suffered indignity through this mocking, through this scorning that the religious leaders and that these Roman soldiers heaped upon him, but he also suffered indignity here. He was very intentionally meant to suffer indignity. These people place Jesus here with these two criminals to send a message, basically. They put Christ to death with these two other criminals to show them, uh, to show all who pass by, to show Jesus' followers. This man, in our eyes, is nothing more than a criminal. They thought that they could criminalize him. They thought that they could put him through this indignity. They, they continue to beat and mock and scorn him, even as they do things like offer him sour wine. Even one of these criminals, as the ESV says, railed at him, saying, aren't you, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the anointed one? Aren't you the Savior sent from God? I mean, come on. Save yourself and us. He stood, he took this indignity, even of the criminals hanging next to him. But even as Christ took this indignity, we see that Christ offers dignity. He offers dignity to this other criminal next to him. Verse 40. But the other, the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So this man, this, this criminal who is dying next to Christ, looks and says, No, something's not right here. I know this man is who he says he is. And he confesses that even as Christ is dying, he knows that his kingdom is coming. And so Christ extends dignity to this man dying on the cross at the lowest, most undignified point of his life and says, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Powerful words to someone suffering the indignation of the cross. Christ is able to offer dignity because he himself has taken our shame. As he took this indignity, he is able to offer us, all who come to him by faith, dignity. And so Christ suffers indignity, offers dignity. We also see that Christ suffers violence. Now Luke, in his account, his, in his account of the crucifixion, he doesn't uh, hang too much on the specific details of, of the physical uh, nature of the crucifixion. There's, there's things mentioned here and there, obviously, and, and we, we get the gist. And, and furthermore, uh, the, the reputation for the Romans, for the brutality of their crucifixion, precedes them, even in the other Gospels. We know that what Christ experienced in his death was physically agonizing. And I, I don't want to romanticize the gore, but we hear it every year. And a reminder, we hear it again this year. 
Christ's hands were pierced with heavy metal nails. His brow, he, was, he had a large crown of thorns placed upon him and pressed into his skin. He bled and he hurt. Here on the cross, as he brought salvation in his suffering, he suffered deep violence. He suffered pain. He bled. He suffered labored breathing. And ultimately, he suffered the experience of a failing, dying body. Christ suffered violence, of course, physical violence. And as well, we know as he, he cries out to the Lord, we know that he suffers some level of spiritual uh, anguish, a spiritual pain upon the cross as he cries out from the Lord, um, as he bears the weight of mankind, as he bears the iniquity of all of us who have come to him in faith. So Christ suffered his violence, yet through what he suffered, he is able to offer peace with God. Christ is able to offer peace because he has taken pain of death upon himself, of our death. Look with me at verse 45. Second part, at least. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So, if you've been in church for some period of time, you should be relatively familiar with the symbolism, but uh, it's good for us to remember from time to time and have that brought back to our memory. We know that the, the temple that uh, the temple of the people of Israel where God dwelt was, was segmented into to different sections. You had the, the kind of more outer gates, and as you went into the actual uh, sanctum of the temple itself, you had the holy place and, and the most holy place. And what separated that, that holy place from where the, the priest would minister from the most holy place was a large, thick curtain. The, the holy place was acceptable to the priests, it was, was accessible to them, but the most holy place was, was only accessible to the high priest once a year as he would enter on the day of atonement. And even as the high priest entered, he risked physical and severe immediate death. So we know that that, that, that death was present because the presence of the Lord there was there in the most holy place. And so if the high priest were to enter and he, he was not sufficiently pure, he was not sufficiently clean, he risked death himself. No doubt that veil, that curtain, was a symbol of the separation that man had with God. That because of our sin, because of our, our wickedness, we are not able to enter the presence of the Lord without facing death. But as this temple, or as this, excuse me, as this curtain was torn in two, the message is ringing loud and clear that because of Christ's death, because of what he had suffered, he has now brought peace to mankind. He has now brought access to the Lord because of the death, because of the punishment that he has taken. Christ suffered deep violence here on the cross, but because of his suffering in our place, he is able to offer peace. We see finally verse 46 that Christ suffered death he said it says and Jesus calling out with a loud voice said father into your hands 
I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This short verse, this short verse records the most unbelievable, paradoxical, ironic, hard to believe thing in the entire world. God, creator of everything, Lord of all, supremely worthy, God's Messiah, the King of God's people, died. He experienced here the fundamental human limitation. Christ did not just merely suffer indignity. He didn't just merely suffer violence. But here, he suffered death. As a result of what Christ has suffered, in suffering death, he is able to offer life. Look again, go back to verse 43. Remember what he said to this criminal there. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ's substitutionary death enables him to remove what has separated us from God, and as such, he is able to promise us truly, really, without qualification, eternal life. He offers this man purely through faith, place in paradise with him. Christ's death is substitutionary as he takes the punishment of God upon himself for us. Christ's death is propitiatory as he takes away the wrath of God so that we may be at peace with him. Christ's death is expiatory as he removes our guilt and our condemnation leaves us with the dignity that he deserves. All of this all of this reminds me of what we read earlier in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. My call as I read this to us, my call to all of you, is to examine in your own heart this what Christ has offered. Do you have it? Do you have the dignity that Christ offers? Do you have the peace with God that Christ offers? Do you have the life that Christ offers? It is available. It's available to you by faith. So my charge to you, cast yourself upon Christ. Cast yourself upon him and all that he offers. He has suffered greatly, as we've seen here on this Good Friday. He has suffered for us, and he offers us. He offers us dignity, peace, life, and much more in him. So you all know me. You know that I normally love to make uh, points of application in a sermon. I don't think that a sermon is complete without uh, points of application. But here, I'm not going to take that approach, at least not the specific, uh, specific, tangible kind of application that we usually want to make. But I think the best response here is actually recorded in Scripture, the best response to the events of Good Friday, to the events of Christ's crucifixion. And so, we see, verse 48, all the crowds had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. 
And so in response to this, in recognition and reverence for the events of Good Friday, for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment, and I'm going to read this verse as our benediction. If you would, just go ahead and exit quietly. As we, uh, again, observe with reverence the death of our Lord, we will await his resurrection on Sunday. If you would, please stand for this benediction. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. You may go in peace.